Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Paul Watson to our show. Dr. Watson is the Vice President for Instruction at Kellogg Community College in Battle Creek, Michigan. Hi, Paul. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Uh, thank you, Dave. It's uh, great to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. There's nothing like uh, having a great conversation with like-minded educators. We're <laughs> all about growing together and uh, being the best that we can be for our students. So tell me about Kellogg Community College and why students select your institution? You know, Kellogg Community College is a special place and, and I really have to give a lot of credit to um, our board um, as well as our, our administration on campus because what I see and what I've seen from even individuals who've been on our administrative staff is a real connection to the community. And I think that's where it always begins is Whenever you have that connection to the, to the individuals in the community, that's where individuals want to join and link up with the institution because they see that connectivity um, occurring. And for, for me, that, that, that's all about belonging, right? It's about when a student is on your campus, they feel as if they fit. That transitional piece is not as difficult because they know they belong because they see the institution as part of the community. And that's why I have to give a lot of props to our, to our board because our board um, members are really integral uh, members of the community. And that's where I think it always begins. I think beyond that, um, when students get here, it's about what is their end goal, right? It's, it's what about, it really is what or how do they define their success as a student? And for many students, um, you know, we have a pretty strong and robust workforce development arm. We have a very strong, robust transfer arm of the institution. And what we find is students come with that intent in mind. And because of our reputation, I think of working with partners, both in industry as well as for your partners, uh, students recognize that we are, and I'll reference this word again, I'm sure, but I always talk about us as a community college being the connective tissue, right, between that, you know, when we talk about bridging and pathways, we really are that where you begin to go to that next step uh, for those individuals. So I think students uh, really come to us because of the, the preparatory work from those that have come before, persons like myself. Um, but then the next step is what are those programs that we do offer when they come? How do they connect them to the next step? So if I was a student, I was kind of struggling with selecting the, one of the many programs you have at Kellogg and you, they kind of walked up on you, what would you suggest to them? What would be a program that they might, should look at least into? So I'll actually give you a snippet of my conversation from just last Saturday. We had an okay. express enrollment event and ever so often, um, and I actually would say it's, it's more often than not, I always say, I'm Paul, great to meet you. Uh, call me curious or call me nosy, what are you interested in doing? And many students, when they, they get embarrassed, and I never understand this, and I always, I always try to disarm that, because they'll become embarrassed and say, well, you know what, I'm really not sure, as if it's the worst possible thing. And I always begin, Dave, by saying, you know what, you're in the best possible place to figure out what, like, where your skills or strengths are. Um, to really begin to make that branch off. 
And so I always start with the disarmament piece first, right? So, so most times, Dave, if you came to me and you said, I wasn't sure, I would bet you money. 90% of the times you would be very sheepish and very embarrassed, right? In making that statement. So my first thing is to disarm. My second thing is to talk about, well, we have multiple programs where you have the freedom to explore. One of the things that I think we did intentionally about two years ago is we really ensure that all of our degrees at Kellogg Community College have a component of Brune standards, what we refer to it, where it actually satisfies the Michigan transfer agreement mm -hmm. that first of all will automatically transfer. So we always begin students focusing if they're not sure on what are that, what are those MTA, right? The Michigan transfer agreement courses that you can take that you know at some point, regardless of the pathway you end up on, you will be able to transfer that. So that's my number two. So start them along that pathway. And then my third thing is we've got a very robust um, career services assessment process by which a student can actually come and actually look to, well, what aptitudes do I have? What skills do I have? What interests do I have? And wherever possible, um, because for us, that first meeting with an advisor is mandatory. It's about matching those up, right? So it's, you know, I, I think I'm interested in, in being a helper, a healer, right? Uh, so maybe, maybe it's going to be a human services pathway. And one of those courses as an intro, intro to psychology, which will be part of that program, will, will satisfy your MTA. But you know what? It's a great way for you to explore and talk about that that helping pathway per se. If it's something along the lines of the healing pathway, well, boy, Dave, do I have a course for you that will satisfy, and, and I think you see, Dave, what I'm referring to, right? Mm -hmm. It's about how do I start with that core that's not only gonna transfer automatically, right? Because it's always, I'm really big on trying to ensure that everything the student does with us is of value. Um, so it's either going to work, hopefully, for the MTA, that Michigan Transfer Agreement. It's going to work for a core degree, our Associate of Arts, um, which many of our students will do as that transfer degree, per se, or the Associate of Science. Or possibly, maybe we pick one that bridges the gap, because I just shared with you, our Bruin Standard, which we're very proud of, is in all of our degrees, which is very unusual for a community college. So, so that's how I think we start that conversation with that student to best prepare them for the degree that sometimes they come and they're not sure where they're gonna start or where they're gonna end. But it, it's a great conversation and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's those conversations that make me uh, have what I call my eureka moments, right? I get, if I'm not teaching, I gotta get my kicks in some way, shape or form. And, and that's the way I do it, right? Is, is, is being a part of that process to, to nurture and to help the students figure out what's, that pathway going to look like for them. That's so great that you recognize that students sometimes are sheepish about saying they don't know it. I think that sometimes comes from the, the, the family that they're involved with. I, I've talked to students in my career that they, they, you know, it's almost like you should know what you're supposed to do right now. And what are you going to do with your life? And that kind of that push on them. And so when they talk to any academic person, they think we're going to kind of do the same thing. And even though everybody's trying to say in it lovely, you know, we're, we're trying to do this the nicest way we can. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really okay not to know. And I, so I'm happy to see that you, you work with them and try to figure out a solution to start that path. Absolutely. And, and the research out there will tell you that uh, a working professional will change career anywhere between two to three times at least. So many times you're, you know, and I even have that in a conversation. I will tell them, 
I, I would share that basic fact with them. And I said, it's okay not knowing, uh, you know, and, and, and that, that's okay as a beginning point. Um, but I'm pretty confident you, we won't end there. Right. Well, good. Um, what's new at Kellogg Community College? And also, what's on the horizon? What's, what might be happening there in the not too distant future? So uh, I, I did not recognize this was going to be a two-hour podcast, Dave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, we've got so many things happening, you know, and I, I'm sure at different times I'll reference uh, how um, our institution, like others, have been affected by the pandemic. But I'm really proud of my team. Uh, we really have kept on with all of our processes and with doing the best for our students. And to that end, in the curriculum world, we started... Uh, in the middle of the pandemic uh, last fall, a uh, cybersecurity major, right? Which was something that was long and hard on the books for us. And it was a matter of uh, getting us to that point. Um, fascinating too is right before that, um, one of the, the things I knew I could assist our, our group here with is we did an assessment before the pandemic about how close we were to offering online degrees. So it was fascinating uh, about 12 months before, we actually offered for the first time five new online degrees as an institution. Um, and this coming fall, we're offering two new programs, um, Exercise Science Associate, as well as another Associate of Science and Sports Management. So curriculum-wise, we're pretty robust. Um, and we continue to stress the importance of the connection to transfer or to workforce in terms of as a, as a great place to start. So we've been really big on pulling data. Uh, some folks may be aware of uh, Burning Glass as a, as a software that we've pulled that information from or MC, uh, MC reports in terms of what's happened in our service region. And we've been using that as a template by which we evaluate um, items. So folks sometimes wonder, well, you know, wow, you've added, uh, you know, two programs this year and three the previous year. Um, well, they don't know. We investigated about 12, Dave, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and we discard those because it doesn't make sense for the community in which, in which we serve, as well as for what we can, can do as a group moving forward. And so that's on the, that's on the, pro, that's on the program side. Uh, the one that we're fascinated and we continue to look into is really uh, UAVs and, and what the future looks like for that in our region. Uh, so we continue to explore that possibility um, as we speak uh, right now. Um, facilities, we're, we're doing a lot of things. Um, you know, it's, I always say, if, if you went through the pandemic and you keep on repeating, I can't wait to return to normal, then you haven't learned anything, which, right. which is not a good thing as an educator. And, I'm all, and I don't necessarily like the word new normal, because it, it sometimes feels as if you're doing something uh, in spite of, or like, because you want to go back to something. And I've always said that what we're doing is we've learned from the processes. So for example, we have um, pushed our, our, our dental hygiene program. We're actually doing a total refurbishment of that space to make sure in the future, um, if with or without COVID, we're gonna, we're gonna create a space that's even more 
um, of a higher level than, than we, we met all of our standards or state standards prior, but we are going to take it to the next level. Um, in our EMS program, uh, we've done the same things where we're actually going to uh, revamp um, an old uh, ambulance that actually at one point was driven into the building and then it was blocked off, right? Uh, now we're actually setting up a, a, a brand new system that now um, increases the remote capability where individuals can record and then view themselves from anywhere on campus, et cetera. Um, and we also are doing some component work and refurbishing one of our, our largest spaces for math and science right now. So as of right now, um, it's, there's, there's lots of drilling and there's lots of stuff going and we have deadlines to meet in a, you know, in a few weeks. Uh, but thankfully we're, we're, we're going towards a great pathway for our students um, a lot of our students are, are really excited because I'll tell you what, they, they know, because we've had to displace, for example, some dental hygienists, their classes. So they're having their lectures in a different space. And I, I walked by them the other day and I said, so I'm very, you know, so I apologize for the disruption because they had to be moved. And they said, it's okay. We get to use that new space this fall. And they are, they are beyond excited about those, those possibilities. So facilities, we continue to move forward. And then the, the thing I think is fascinating for me is on the services side is, like I shared with you, we don't want to return to what we did before. So what did we learn that we can, uh, we have acclimated to it, but we recognize the value in the change. So for us, some of our services that we provided only face-to-face now we've intentionally decided for several of those resources to now be able to say, okay, here's the three pieces or the three ways we're gonna connect with you as a student. And what's great is we have the infrastructure now that, that you know, I always talk about uh, incremental changes and leap changes. And when you're a lifelong learning, you know, or institution that's, that, that's making those incremental changes, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But every now and again, you have these events that cause you to make these leap changes. And in some ways, uh, I know that Kellogg was on that pathway. We were incrementally going to make some changes towards that, towards that end. Well, the great thing, and this is going to sound like an odd thing to say, but the great thing about the pandemic was it actually forced us to make some leap changes that were the total sum of probably four to five years of incremental changes in some of these areas. So for us um, as a group, uh, we've, we've embraced, I think, many of those ways in which we have reimagined how we connect with our students. And, and, I, and that's what I'm really excited about it, um, I think, moving forward is I'm really excited to see how some of those um, services that we have honed in the midst of the pandemic, um, how they are going to play out in real time again this time around, without this, you know, without the specter of, you know, thou shalt. Now it's we think this is a good thing, so we're going to continue to do it um, based upon feedback from our students. So, so I'm really excited about the things that are happening um, here on campus. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't stress enough is, you know, we've got a, a really good team. Um, you know, great faculty, uh, great administrators. I've got two wonderful deans. Um, and, and what's nice about it is that I always say, keep the main thing, the main thing, why are we here? Students, let's make sure what, whatever we're doing does fit what the students are looking for and, and their needs moving forward. You know, as you're talking about moving forward, and I agree is, you know, if, if the new normal is not a good word, 
we have to have learned something from what we went through. So what's higher ed going to look like in the future? We should learn from what we just went through. How did the how did the faculty you know, when you're moving everything forward? How, how did you work with faculty for buy-in? Because for some, this was just not you're going to do something. They're going to have to do a lot of work right now to take care of these new things that students are coming into. So, so what did you do to get your faculty up and running and to get buy-in for these new changes? That's a great question, Dave. And, and what I probably would say that was the, was the great benefit is the prior work that myself and my deans have had working in collaboration with our faculty. Because I think if you don't start from that position of authentic relationships, I think things will not go well. So I, I'll first of all say that. So, so when I came here two, uh, approximately two and a half years ago is I was intentional in developing those relationships. I was intentional also about us sitting in rooms and, and talking about shared experiences as educators. So my faculty knew um, that my first love is teaching. My first love, and it's, it's, it may sound odd to say this, and, and I'll get to this later on, I'm sure, but I don't, I'm not an administrator because I wanted to leave teaching. I actually am an administrator because I love teaching. Because as an administrator, I can support good teaching and I can, I can support them to ensure it happens. So what's, what I have to um, talk about first is the establishment of that authentic relationship with my faculty and my faculty group and my deans. Because from there, when the pandemic happened, it was more of a meeting of the minds than me saying, this is what we have to do, right? In some areas, did I have to say that? Possibly, because, because it, was, it was such a traumatic time for some individuals that I would have to step up to that leadership role and say, okay, this is what we're gonna do moving forward. Because some individuals, for multiple reasons, were surrounded by what was happening in the world around them, right? But what I loved is I called a meeting with my faculty, and I can see it like I'm like I'm like I'm talking to you right now, Dave. I'm in this auditorium. It was, it almost was like a, you know, it was, I can remember one faculty member said, this looks like a one act show because it, I was in, I was in the stage. I had pulled up a chair. I was sitting down in front of them and we were having a conversation about what we we're going to do. And they're all in front of me. And it was not an agenda. There was no PowerPoint. It was, I was sharing with them what I had seen. Because um, how I prepped for the pandemic is when I noticed it was happening on the West Coast, I was probably three weeks ahead because I could see things happen on the west side of the US. And I could see what they were trying and I could see what was working and what wasn't working. So even before things came over here to Michigan, I kind of knew the cycles of what I would have to go through, right? And I'm really big on learning from others as much as I can. So I learned a lot from a lot of my peers on the west coast who went through this before I did. And my conversation to my faculty was, so here's what we have to do. Here's the concerns from our county. I'm concerned about your safety, your health, and your students. Here's how I think we navigate this. And I laid out the process in terms of what we were going to do, why it was best for our students, and why it was best for our campus community. 
And having that authentic conversation, in my opinion, that that small conversation and the small auditorium and the Davidson auditorium in our, in our music and communication area is what I think helped us because that catapulted us to, okay, who is my director of learning technologies? Okay, she is gonna be reached out to all faculty. Here's a list of our resources. Um, because we had already been on that voyage of recognizing, I mentioned to you the incremental changes uh, because one year prior, we we officially had those five online degrees. So we had already developed a process, but uh, we had done a lot of work and it, it, with my, my, my team in particular in developing resources to get an instructor who has never taught an online environment to teach in an online environment. We had a process laid out prior to the pandemic about how do I certify an instructor to teach in the online environment? What resources do we provide to them? Um, what professional development can we provide for those individuals? So what was great for us is we not only had, like I said, the foundation of that trust from the beginning, we had the processes laid out. I listened to them. Some of them had some great ideas in that conversation, that one man act I referred to, that really changed and impacted what we were going to do moving forward. And then it was a matter of communication. Um, every single, because you know, I, I am very, aware of and not wanting my faculty or anyone to read one more email. But because of what was happening, I actually intentionally sent an email of encouragement. Uh, I always talk about, you know, I try to take every time I talk with my faculty pretty seriously because it's a way to either um, uh, inspire, correct, or motivate. And if I treat each conversation, especially a large group like that, we're going to be in a much stronger place. So I intentionally emailed them every single week. And it was more about making sure they understood I was with them. If there were any issues, they could reach out to me directly. And I did my best. And they knew I would be there doing my best if I had to respond uh, quickly to an emergent scenario. And I was always communicating with them. And I think that probably um, last year, uh, last spring, because we went, um, we went remote in March um, of last year, 2020. So to finish off that semester, that was, that was what I thought had to be done. And I knew it was, it was the right move because uh, towards the end of the semester, I kind of alluded to the fact, okay, this is gonna be my last email. Um, you know, I'm sorry, some of you are, are gonna miss, may not be missing my quotes that I'm trying to motivate, et cetera. But I had several individuals reach out and tell me they really missed that weekly email. Um, and it was, and it's interesting is in a way that communication that I did, I actually learned from it and I did something different, uh, increasing my communication with my division actually this um, last fall. And that's something I am keeping throughout that whole last uh, academic year. And I'm keeping it into this fall. So it, it's, it's just a fascinating uh, evolution of communication for me and for a group. And I cannot stress enough is, uh, you know, the authentic relationship that, that we've developed and we continue to develop is where I think that buy-in happened, right? Because it's all about ownership. The ownership was not for the institution, which is interesting that the ownership was really centered about our students. Hmm, good point.
Well, can you talk a little bit about how you became the vice president for instruction at Kellogg? So this is going to, this is, I have to tell you some background, Dave. Um, <clears throat> so I was born in uh, Guyana, South America. I was born in a, a, a third world country, still is, a land filled with uh, resources like you and I couldn't imagine, bauxite, uh, raw material for aluminum, for example, uh, gold, there's oil off the coast, rich in resources. But still to this day, one of the poorest, not, not the poorest countries, but a poor country in South America nonetheless. So I grew up on my, my grandmother's farm with a, a mud floor, straw, manure. That's what I grew up with. Now, fast forward, my dad's a minister, and we moved to the island of Barbados, still a third world, but different um, level of economics. Uh, tourism is uh, by far the number one. And then imagine at 17, I come to the US as an international student. Now, today I'm a vice president at a community college. So how does one make that pathway and what, what have I learned about it? Because I think that whole journey is actually what set me and it, it really informed the, informs the lens with which I interact with individuals. And it really informs my perspective on, on many things. So for me, it's always been about, <laughs> it's always been about not just doing the right thing, but ensuring you're in the right place to do the right thing. So in my transition from, from teaching, right? And I, at one point I taught in the um, K-12 world. I, it was a, the K-12 school had 296 students, Dave. So wow. you can imagine I was the seventh grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th and 12th grade teacher. I kept on blaming the guy in front of me who did not prepare her students adequate enough. But every now and then I noticed most four out of five times it was me, right? I always, I always ask, said that. And that experience helped me to understand alignment. And that was a lesson I will never, ever forget the notion of alignment. It also taught me about community. And at one point now, when I go to um, higher education that I am teaching, and I recognize the influence I have, right? And I thought I was an okay teacher. I was a decent teacher. Um, I, you know, I, I hate, I, <laughs> I try to be humble. I think I was pretty good, but I knew I could be better. But I knew regardless of where I was in the spectrum of, you know, the good to great spectrum, I knew I could assist individuals. And I could help them, right? Because I'm a firm believer that teachers are helpers, teachers are healers. That's why I think teachers do. So I, I, I volunteered to do a math class for educators because I was like, okay, here's a way I, I know I could impact, you know, the, you talk about the sphere of influence and how it can impact and, and, and uh, assist positive change. Because I know instead of just teaching a class of 15 or 30, now every one of those 30 is going to be teaching another 30. So here is a way to, to, to really spread that. And then I had the bad ex, a bad experience of witnessing a group of faculty who served under what I, my term would be a poor administrator. And there were some of my smartest, most creative colleagues but because they didn't have the support or the, I, I think that's the best way to say it, the support or just the, the impetus from that leadership, 
that they couldn't blossom. That program was just wilting and, and it could not grow because of that stilted um, position. And that was when I recognized, I felt as if I was called to administration. And that's when I, I started leaving the ranks of, of faculty. Because I always tell folks, it would be very easy for me to like stop what I'm doing and go back to the classroom. But I know I can do so much more good in the position that I'm in than the one where, you know, where I probably loved the most. And as I said, I don't love my job. Trust me, I do. But I, like I said, told you, I get my kicks because I, I can impact so many more students. And that's probably what led me along the pathway to leave the ranks of faculty um, and go into administration. And for me, it's about always, I shared with you before, you know, teachers or healers and helpers. It's about me recognizing where I can assist an institution. So for example, when I looked at um, Kellogg, I knew it's, it was a great institution, great reputation, but I knew that I could assist in some components that I knew where Kellogg wanted to grow. So it was me coming, you know, at the perfect time to be able to assist for what, what that, that next iteration of the instructional division look like. So for me, that's, that, that's probably what I would, um, would say that that's, that's really key for me that really led me uh, to be in this position because um, my final thing I have to say is I firmly believe education is that opportunity, right? And one of my deans and I, we always talk about how it's, it's a mixture of personal responsibility plus equal opportunity is what gives you that success. And I started with a conversation with those countries I lived in. Guyana, great resources. Do they have the best opportunity to utilize those resources? They don't. So as a country, they don't have that success. That concept, I think, plays out. And I've always tried to ensure from my position I can ensure a greater percentage of success because I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to make sure that from our end, we make sure we provide those um, equal opportunities for our students. So what's been some of the biggest lessons you learned so far as the vice president there? Well, um, there, there are several. I, I always reference that you know, it's really important to, 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 know, to know oneself, right? Is that notion of metacognition. So I always begin with, you know, make sure you understand yourself and others on your teams, right? So like, I need to know what my strengths are. I need to know where my strengths of my deans are and my chairs and directors are, because I've got to be able to put them into the best position to assist our division moving forward. That's probably one, that's probably, um, one of the larger ones I would recommend. The second thing I probably would say is uh, fail, fail fast and fail often, or I'm a big John Wooden fan. And one of John Wooden's uh, sayings says, uh, you know, failure is not fatal, but failure to change maybe. And I, I don't know why it is in higher education, we are so afraid to fail. Um, I, I will tell my folks that if you tell me that there's a chance of something working, I am willing to pilot it and try it because I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a nothing ventured, nothing gained approach. 
And I don't know why in higher education, we don't try things enough. We're oftentimes stuck in this. Maybe we're just comfortable in our positions or we're afraid of being in trouble, or maybe we've set up the incorrect model where you have to at least achieve the past results or forward. And we're not willing to fail in something where there's a chance of success. And, and, and don't get me wrong, Davis, you know, I'm not saying be a fool, being foolhardy, you know, I, I mean, get your data, make, get your supports, make some data-driven decisions, um, align with what's happening around you, but try things. And, and I think if there's nothing else, I think my faculty and my folks who I work with there see that in me because I've tried a lot of stuff and some have worked and some haven't. And um, so I repeat that a lot, you know, fail. <laughs> I, I repeat that probably way too much than they probably would like me to do, right? But, um, and they know I'm always fond of, let's try this project, let's try this out and let's figure out, can we, if it's successful, can we bring it to scale? So that's probably number two. And probably number three, I think I would say is, um, and I'm, even though I'm a math guy, I'm gonna reference something um, that it's a, it's a form in literature called the hero's journey. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Mm. And, and at some point, if you ever have some time, just, just Google a, a schematic of this, it's called the hero's journey. And it's, it's a basic way of writing. So I'm gonna use an example like um, Lord of the Rings, right? Most people are aware of Lord of the Rings and, and the basic scope of that story. I always say as an administrator, as an educator, as a faculty member, I don't care what position you're in, you are on a hero's journey. And here's what I mean by that. So it, as a hero, and if you, if you reference uh, any great Tomei or any book like I just referenced, the, the Lord of the Rings, there's always this call to adventure, right? right? Frodo, Frodo has this call to adventure to go, to go into the, um, the great beyond here. So there's that call to adventure. The next thing that happens is that you have to traverse between the known and the unknown, right? You, you cross some threshold. And that's so true in an administrator who's willing to take those, what I would call a, a calculator or data-driven risk. After that, sometimes there really is a part of you where you're like, you're in that deep despair. Like, is this really working? Why did I set out on this great adventure? Like you, you start to doubt yourself. And many times that's where if you've got a mentor or you've got a John Wooden, you know, John Woodenism to support you or to, or, or to just um, really undergird you at that point, it's a dark place to be in. At some point you get to the bottom of it and you start to come out of it, right? And in the hero's journey, they sometimes refer to that as a, as a rebirth, right? Coming out of the abyss for example, and then you start to transform. So you can imagine on a, as an, as an institution, you crossed over the known to unknown, you had your dark moment, you had your despair, is this really going to work? Many times it does, you transform, and then you come back out from the unknown, quote unquote, because it's now known, right? You have succeeded in that. And the fun thing about that, Dave, is you get to do it again and again. <laughs> and again, and, and that's what you have to do. And I always, I oftentimes will reference and with my faculty, I always draw upon experiences in teaching because I will tell them, look, when I taught, uh, you know, balancing equations, 
if I was really a, a good teacher, I am not going to teach it the same way every time because I should be hearing, you know, someone's got to have a, a really neat way of, of, of explaining it that might work. And I, and I build and I always reference it, you know, I build my my teaching or pedagogical tool belt. Right. And I have all these tools that I can use. But there are times where I know in my classes where I taught something and, you know, you have these weird out of body experiences. Maybe it's only me when I'm teaching, but I'm watching myself teach. And I'm like, Paul, I can't believe you're going to try that. This is going to bomb so bad. They're going to be so much more confused. And you go through your lesson and sometimes it failed spectacularly. And I had to, to go back and fix it. But many times it worked and it connected with another student that I might have missed uh, the first time around. And that's what, that's what I always say is that, you know, we've got to be, that's probably the last one I'll probably share with you that I've learned is, We've always got to be on this hero's journey. We've got to recognize that cycle and, and embrace it, right? Not run from it. We've got to embrace it. Yeah, you know, change, I know quite a few faculty administrators, change scares the heck out of them. And, uh, you know, if you look at how business works, business changes to always improve. And I, and I agree with you. I don't know why that is. I don't know, you know, uh, some of the best people I've ever worked with were individuals who were willing to take a shot at something new. If the data said it might work. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, and that's always my, my encouragement to individuals is, is it's okay. If it fails, if it failed, let's just not repeat that. (laughs) That's all we've got to do because what you have is that documentation that there was a great chance of success and of really improving uh, whatever it is for your students. And because and, because I, I really want us to be about um, uh, it, it's Dweck that talks about a growth mindset. Right. And it's about trying to ensure that we really are doing the best for our students. And and I always tell folks is, you know, if you want to be selfish, that's fine. Then don't say it's for your students. But you know what? You learned. So let's be selfish and say, how did you learn? And if your students, if that's what gets your kicks versus the student perspective, and you're very self-focused, well, let's let's see how you are growing. Because if you grow, it will impact them without a doubt. You know, you've given some really good advice right now for, for new academic leaders. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Because um, <laughs> that was a pretty good list you gave there. Oh, I, I, I have, I probably could give you uh, even more. Um, <laughs> uh, I probably would also say, you know, mentoring. I, I, I got to give you mentoring. Um, and I alluded to it, I think, prior is if you don't have an official mentor, create a mentor. And what I mean by that is you've got to have someone out there you admire, who you've got to read some articles, you've got to read their books. Um you may not know them on a firsthand basis, but I always say books are like getting to know someone, right? So, so find that mentor. And I think what's important too, as I have risen through the ranks of academia, I think it's really important you find the individual. And sometimes it's good if it's not at your current institution, who you can really say, I really am not getting this interaction. And I really, and you've got to develop who it is that you're going to trust to want to have that conversation with, but also to literally tell you like it is. Um, you know, I, I have had some great conversations where I've been the mentor or I've been the mentee and I have needed to hear 
those words of advice from those individuals. Um, and I probably, I probably have to mention one more because I think it's really important. Um, and it probably happens in my career every two or three years. I don't know what it is, but there will always be something that will come that will test your, your ethics or integrity. And, you know, I, I take my role as vice president of instruction very seriously. I'm also the accreditation liaison officer for the institution. And one of the things I have always tried to share with individuals is the, the buck stops with me, right? I, I've got to go to bed every night knowing I've made the best decisions for the institution. I've protected as a worthy honor of the institution. And I've, and I've respected the honor of the academic journey where, whereby I am not, for example, given credits out, or I'm not uh, doing decisions because it's quote unquote best for an institution or best for a student or best for me because it takes the heat off of me. Um, sometimes as an administrator, you've got to embrace the heat of you standing up for what you know is right. Because every two to three years, and I don't know why it feels as if this happens, is I will be asked to do something or, you know, indirectly. And, it's, and it comes from all directions, Dave. I mean, it, it could come from a student. It could come from a faculty member. It could come from, a, from an administrator. It could come from, you know, a community member. And the easiest thing to do is to say yes or to go along with it. But there are times where you are going to be challenged and you have to stick with those with that integrity that you have, the ethics that you have. Because what I oftentimes will say is you'll take the heat in that moment or a month or whatever it takes for that heat to, to dissipate, to, to, to go away. But not only will you sleep better at night, you will actually be in the long run respected more. Because people will recognize that you stand, uh, you stand by those beliefs and the integrity of the process or the institution. And I probably would say that's that's one that always uh, that that's probably the 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 difficult one that you were never taught in in academic chairperson or dean school or that's not in the manual uh, that it's going to be tested like that. Um, but you've got to be ready to to say no. Um, or to chart that path. And, 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 and you're going to know why <laughs> your conscience or, or, or your evidence as to why you should pursue that pathway. It's about sticking to that. And I think that's really uh, important for us to have um, ethical uh, leaders uh, with integrity. So since you mentioned um, mentorship, who's been the biggest influence in your career and why did they have such an impact? Um <laughs> What a great question. I, I have to give you three individuals who were very important um, at a part of my life. And that was when I came to the US as an international student. And there's, there are three gentlemen. And I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to distinguish it even differently. I'm going to say it's, it was three white gentlemen. I'm a person of color. And these three individuals spoke to me in different ways that have really formed my perspective and my lens throughout my academic progress. 
Uh, one is the late Dick Wing, Professor Wing. He actually uh, flew, who's a fighter pilot um, in Vietnam, and he would uh, come to my alma mater, Houghton College, where I was a, a student. And I always referred to him as my wit and my grit. And he was a technical writing professor. He would drum home in me that Paul, and he knew I was a math guy, because that's what he called me, the math guy. And he would say, Paul, the best writing is rewriting. I don't care if you're doing math, you have to be a writer. And I took one class with him because it was required. I took a second with him because I knew it was the best thing for me in the future. So wit and grit, and he had a crazy sense of humor. Like, uh, you know, he, for example, uh, he, he gained uh, 200 pounds and he would always introduce himself as a Vietnam fighter. And he says, trust me, that pilot is inside of me. Uh, because because over the years he, he, he gained uh, weight and uh, but he would always have his picture as a pilot for evidence and he just, just made us smile but wit and grit the second one I have to give to you is a, a, um, another individual who really was what I call my heart and my empathy so um, dr. Bruce Brenneman um, who's passed away now uh, he was an individual I never had a class with him he found me um, on, in the student center one day and sat down with me and started having a conversation. And that was a relationship that really emphasized that I've really taken with me uh, throughout the years with regards to how I treat other individuals and how I, I, I make the first step um, as needed. And I am afraid to fail in making that authentic connection and, and being present in that moment, so heart and empathy. And the last one was actually Professor Jake Jacobson, who was actually my advisor, um, who I would probably say influenced my mind and or scholar, right? The whole notion of how am I gonna become better as a learner? And he was the one who challenged me. And I thought I was coming in as a, as a hot shot, right? In mathematics, because I came in and I'm like, this, this math is easy. I'm like, put me in Calc 2. I'm like, why are you gonna put me back? And, and they put me in Calc 2 and I started in Calc 2, which was unusual because I was coming in as a 17 year old and I started in Calc 2. And he taught me to be humble <laughs> because he, he helped me recognize I had not learned everything. And when I, when I, I talked about that hero's journey. So I came in like the hot shot at the top of the, you know, I'm the hero about to set up on this new adventure. And believe you me, when I hit my second or third class with him, I was in that abyss, right? That the depths of despair, like, oh my word, what did I do? Like, did I take, make the wrong choice? And that transformation coming out of that, of that portion of that hero's journey is where uh, Jake really um, impacted me with recognizing uh, my ability to learn and being able to take the talents I did have, but not being afraid, not to sit on those laurels, but to push myself further to make sure I really became a better mathematician because there was such a thing, right? I was, not, <laughs> I was not the best mathematician at that point in time, but how do I push myself further? And so he was the one that challenged me. I later on did an honors project with him that um, really uh, blew my mind with regards to the questions he was asking. So those are the three I probably would say. And, and, what I, and the reason why I probably chose those three is I think it's, it really behooves us in higher education 
to really recognize that when individuals come in our pathways, right, business and industry, community members, uh, board, uh, administration, different components, that we're at that moment for a particular reason. Now, what we have to recognize is that we have a role to play at that moment in time. And one never knows how that's going to impact that individual. But those three for me, um, the late Professor Wing, my wit and grit, the late uh, Bruce Brenneman, Dr. Brenneman, uh, was my heart and empathy. And uh, Jake, is, Jake is still around and still solving math problems uh, as my mind and scholar. And for me, those are the three that I probably would say um, that really have shaped me uh, into um, who I am as a learner and probably, well, not probably, and definitely as an administrator. Great. Well, here's my last question for you. How do you see higher ed evolving over the next five to 10 years? Well, Dave, um, <laughs> if, I, uh, if I'm if i right, does that mean that somewhere out there, I'm gonna be getting this, this windfall, right? There you uh, go. Nostradamus-like, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, well, all new book. Absolutely. So I probably would say is uh, agility. I, th I, think, I think higher ed has, I hope, has learned from the pandemic in particular of the need to be agile and the need to not just say, this is the way we've always done it. And I, I hope we would learn from that process. So, so that's, the, that's probably the first one I would mention. The second way I see things evolving is I really see because of the dynamics within the demographics that we serve right now, the kind of credentials that we offer, I think has to change. Um, and I hope we would, we would continue to evolve that way. And by that I'm referring to stackable um, uh, credentials, for example. You know, I refer to the term on and off ramps. Uh, I'm big on saying, you know, if I have a degree program, okay, what's my on ramp? My first one, hopefully, is dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment, right? Um, is my off first off ramp a credential? Is my first off ramp an internship? Um, is the completion then the off ramp for us as a community college to, to a transfer program? Is it the workforce? And it's about also the other one I, I neglected is for the other on ramp is if someone is coming from business and industry and they do have earned certificates or they do have learned experiences, how do we give them credit for those life experiences? How do we give them a second on ramp where they don't have to repeat information they already know? So, so I would hope as, as in higher education, we evolve more towards how do we stack, how do we on and off ramp students a lot smoother. Um, I probably would say uh, really important uh, to me is the notion of equity and the social awakening that's happened in the country. I think, uh, you know, I, I reference the fact that the, my three mentors as a 17 to, to, to 20 year old were three white men. And the reason why I say that is what, what was fascinating was they helped provide the equal opportunities that I needed because I was a motivated 17 year old. So I had the personal responsibility piece down. It was about who was gonna help leverage those equal opportunities for me to find my success. So for me, it's about that social um, awakening. You know, it, it's, 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 I've had multiple conversations about, um, about what that looks like in the future. Cause I've had discussions with, with, with individuals and I've said, you know what folks, these problems have always been there. And I don't know sometimes uh, why the conversation is higher education is that this is a new problem. 
it is not a new problem. I think what's different is we have an awakening of this problem and barrier that exists. And that's a good thing, so don't get me wrong. But what do we do with it now? And, and how do we ensure that we provide those opportunities for individuals that don't have that leg up? I, I'll give you a classic example that I, I always, um, I have the opportunity to speak with faculty, both at my institution and other places. And folks sometimes will ask me the question about, uh, is it fair to one student, right? Is it equity? Is it equality? And, and what does that look like? And my best example of the awakening that has to happen, not only on a micro level, but on a macro level, is what I refer to as when I taught my classroom and I taught different, you know, I differentiated instruction. And most folks who have been in the classroom start to get what I'm seeing right away. And then they back off because they're like, oh, does he really mean that? What do I mean by differentiated instruction in case we've got someone who is not quite sure what, what we're referring to? When I walk into a class and I teach my, my Calc 1 class, very quickly, I'm going to identify, uh, you know, a hotshot like my past self, Dave, <laughs> right, who, who was prepared well and as at a different level. If I'm a great, if I'm a good instructor, I'm going to recognize that. If I'm a great instructor, I'm going to do something about it. So if I'm a great instructor, I'm going to, I'm going to be given the same lecture overall somewhat. But there's going to be opportunities where I'm going to challenge that hotshot to push themselves further. At the same time, if I'm a good instructor, I'm going to recognize there's someone who wasn't prepared. You know, at the community college level, at, at Kellogg Community College, the average age of our students is around 25. So that means if, an, if a student is in front of me in a Calc 1 class here, that individual might have been outside of a math environment for three to four years. So the equal opportunity piece for that individual is just currency, right? Math currency. If I'm, again, if I'm a good instructor, I'm gonna recognize the dichotomy within my class. Again, if I'm a great instructor, I'm gonna do something about it. So I gotta now bring up the math currency for my individuals who have been out of the classroom for a while. I've got to also push my other students further. That's differentiated instruction. That's great instruction. It is no different if I'm as an administrator and I walk around my campus and I see it, right? I don't have a Calc 1 class, but I have a Kellogg Community College community and I see that dichotomy that exists within our students. And so I can see it. So Dave, that makes me a good administrator. But the goal is, right, using the Carol Dweck mindset is I wanna be a great administrator. So my question is, what are you gonna do about it? So that's another way I would say that higher education has to evolve, right? And that's what I'm really big upon is how are we going to do that? And how are we going to address what I, what I think is a real social movement, a social awareness of this equity issue? So, you know, let's not be good. Let's be great. Right, Dave? <laughs> well, what, what a great comment in our conversation today. That, that was perfect, Paul. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, sir. I, I really appreciate it. Look forward to listening to you and others that you have because uh, I've got more to learn. So I look forward to hearing what others will share. So thank you so much for having me today. Dave. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks everyone for listening. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.